This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Nicole Haddo, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks so much, Cheryl. I've really been looking forward to chatting. Yeah, same, same. I'm really interested in this topic. Nicole is a Victorian-based journalist and author. She was the executive property writer for the Australian Fin Review. Uh, she is author, also the author of two books about finance and investing, Smashed Avocado, How I Cr- Cracked the Property Market, and You Can Too, which she turned into a successful podcast. And she's here today to talk about her latest book, The Ethical Investor, How to Quit Toxic Companies and Grow Your Wealth. Now, Nicole, I mean, I think it's... It's not just a Sydney thing because I know you're in Victoria and I'm in New South Wales, but property prices are an obsession. Is it a country obsession or is it just a New South Wales obsession? I think it's a countrywide obsession. The reality is that property prices have become so high and and so unattainable for so many people that it is an obsession. Um, And I think it's really sad because, you know, the the Australian dream always was to to have a humble brick house, um, you know, with a backyard and, and a hill's hoist out the back. Uh, you know, I have a barbecue on the weekend. These, these weren't unreasonable things that people desired. And all of a sudden, it's out of reach for, for a lot of people. And I think that's where the obsession comes from. Um, you know, there's so many home renovation shows out there now and, and um, property has just become this this thing that people aspire to almost against all logic at this point in time. It is so crazy. It, I think you're right. Logically, sometimes I look around me and I'm sure you've got the same in Victoria. I see hundreds and thousands of apartments go up. I'm seeing building sites everywhere, you know, mainly around transport hubs. And in these blocks, there'd have to be a couple of hundred, if not a thousand apartments. And they're still building, still building. And I'm just wondering where this is going. I think it's really worrying when we see these really, I mean, you know, not not all properties are are created equal. There are, you know, it depends on what your lifestyle's Mm. like. If you need Mm. to be close to the city, that's fine. I know when I was looking for my my current property, I was prepared to look at, you know, commuting and things like that because I personally, you know, wanted a home and I I bought a home for the the same price as an apartment in Melbourne. And so, you know, it it really depends on what you're looking for. But my concern is the broader planning and, and what opportunities look like for people in 10, 20 years from now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you totally. And also, too, I think that some of the apartments are going up, particularly around Western Sydney that I've seen, you know, there's safety issues. These are going up very fast. And, I mean, there was one apartment block where people had to move out. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just that. I mean, a lot of them, you know, the design is is, is questionable. The, yeah. the windows are small. Um, you know, they don't have basic sort of um, quality amenities. The lifts are tiny. Ventilation um, is terrible. And, and these are places that get really, really hot. So, you know, people are spending huge chunks of money to, to live in, in these environments and, and they're still not necessarily great conditions. Mm. You know, I often think about home ownership and I do a lot of travelling. I, I spend um, a large part of the year in the US 
uh, and I've travelled to Europe several times, and they have a different attitude towards home ownership. There is, um, I don't know what it's called, but some kind of rent stability. So there's renters seem to have more rights, let's say, in the US and in Europe than in Australia. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I also think it's it, it's far more acceptable. And, you know, I'm not entirely sure about what, what retirement looks like for people in those countries who are renting. But I know that here in Australia, our system is hugely reliant on, on people owning their properties, a small amount of superannuation and, and the pension, um, you know, is, is not potentially enough to manage rent once you stop working. So, Well, well that's um, the problem, Nicole, because I think the thing is, and, and excuse me to interrupt there, but we are almost all of us are paying market value rent. I mean, those that are renting. And there isn't a lot of subsidised rentals. There isn't rent control. That was what, what I was looking for. There's not rent control in this country. So if you're 70 and you're retiring and you don't own something, uh, own a property, then you're paying market value rent. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know that you are potentially paying the entire cost of, of the investor's mortgage while trying to set your up, yourself up for a time. And it's it's really terrifying and, it's, and it's, mm. it's not fair. And I think a lot more needs to be done. But unfortunately, the policymakers just don't seem to have it on their radar at all. Mm. I've noticed even with this election, it becomes a, a kind of a minute election issue. I often, you know, you've got to really look for it to hear about it. But then once the election's over, I've noticed over the years, and no one talks about it anymore. Mm. So much of our economy is now sort of underpinned by keeping property prices high or at least sort of sustaining those values. So I think, you know, a lot of both sides of politics actually just don't know what to do. It's gone so far. It's it's mm. really quite worrying. Mm. So tell me how you came to be a writer and a journalist and working for the Australian Fin Review and becoming an expert in property. Talk to me about that. I didn't be, intend to become an expert in property, but um, look, I had always wanted to write and my my interest had always been in, in non-fiction. I studied creative writing. Uh, I, I sort of kicked off my career writing for fashion magazines, so I lived in Sydney for a period of time writing for Madison and Cleo and um, those sorts of titles. And I wrote everything from relationships to, to personal finance at that point. Um, so I've written for a lot of a lot of different publications. Ultimately, I actually moved into advertising, but it was while I had my first investment property and I was struggling to, to keep up with all of my bills that a friend of mine who was a journalist said to me, there's a, there's a property um, writing gig that you could probably do on the side if you wanted the extra cash. So that was how it all started out. It was purely a, um, you know, a, a bit of a side hustle. But I was really lucky to have that opportunity because I was writing about top-end properties across the country and it really got me thinking about how literal information younger people trying to enter the market were getting. So I started a blog, just a little humble blog called it Smashed Avocado. Um, didn't really know what I was doing with it. Just Love the title, by the way. Just, Love just the title. To, <laughs> thank you. Just, just to amuse myself and put some of the things I'd learned down and, and um, long story short, I ended up with an agent who very quickly secured an opportunity for me with Blacking Books and um, Smashed Avocado in book form came out not, not too long after that. It's so timely, isn't it? So timely. You really jumped on something. That's, and, you know, you're right. I mean, how do kids navigate it? I, I'm not a baby boomer. I think I'm a bit younger than a baby boomer, so I've forgotten what I am. But when I look at young people out there, and I've got so many, and they all work so hard and so many in my team, but I think maybe sometimes, and this is my perspective, that if we stopped going out, maybe we could afford to save up for a, a deposit. But then as these young people point out to me, 
for prices, you're going to be saving up for 20 years for just even a deposit. Absolutely. That's that's the biggest challenge. Actually, yes. you know, if, if you can if you can secure something reasonably affordable, the more the mortgage repayments are not dissimilar to, you know, rent. Yeah. Um in, in some locations. The challenge is getting that deposit. I mean, in Sydney, to give you an idea, if you want a twenty percent deposit for a house that is the median price, you're looking at more than two hundred thousand dollars. That's just absurd, right? So (laughs) I never had that sort of money. (laughs) So for me, it was a case of, all right, obviously I'm not buying in Sydney ever. Um, But I I sort of had to turn things on my head. I was like, what is an entry-level investment? What is the bottom of the market doing? Where can I get in and and secure something that hopefully will grow over time, build in equity and help me to take my next step? Because I couldn't buy at the middle of the market. I had to buy at the bottom. It was the only way I was going to save a deposit quickly. Um, and it was the only way I was going to get into the market. Mm. So did your interest really, it came from experience, didn't it, from what you were doing in your personal life trying to get into the market and then you monetize that into a blog and then a book? Yeah, I, I, um, I've often written first person. I've taken my own experiences not just to write about myself because I want to but because I have these experiences that are often universal and I think how can I put that human element into this finance story, for example. People don't want to read a textbook but they do want to read about the challenges and, and mistakes that, that an individual faces and it's far more palatable, I think. I put my own experiences down on paper and I thought I think other people can learn from this. Mm. Yeah, because you're not really writing, I mean, you are writing about yourself, but you're also writing about a shared experience and that's where it resonates, right? Absolutely. It's it's identifying a shared experience and working out how I can help others to, to overcome this challenge, provide some optimism, some education, whatever it is. Yeah. So I own my apartment and I'm lucky enough to own it outright, but that's because I'm old, right? So I've had plenty of time to pay it off. But people often say to me, oh, why don't you just go and buy something else? Why don't you buy another one? Now, I have no interest and have never had any interest in building a property portfolio. But I see it all the time. I mean, I see people owning multiple places. How does that affect the accessibility for younger people? It's interesting that you say that because I also don't have any strong desire to have a property portfolio. Um, I think it's hard enough for my generation to enter the market at all. And, and, you know, the fact that so many properties are held really by a limited number of people who have generated extraordinary wealth as a result of that. Do I think that's fair? No, I don't. No, I just want to see everyone who needs a home be able to secure a home. And so treating property, you know, treating a residence, a roof over your head as an investment, as an asset, inevitably we do need to do that for one individual home because that's the way Australia works now. But generating wealth through 10 investment properties and charging exorbitant rent, that's not something that I could do, not when I'm trying to to help my fellow millennials enter the market. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know I agree with you. I often think about it and think, no, it's just not for me because what will ha- what would happen to me is if the tenant had a sob story, like something happened and a genuine story, like they lost a job, well, then I just wouldn't be able to keep taking rent. Like that's just who I am. And then I'd probably lose my mortgage and then I'd lose a property. I was like, it's not for me. It's too personal. I, <laughs> my, my, my first property, I did live in it for 18 months and then I did rent it out for a couple of years. And I was really surprised by how emotional I got when mm. the agent looking after the property put forward the application because I was going to have to say yes to someone and no to someone else. 
and you hear a little bit about these people's lives yeah. and and I didn't expect to have that emotional response to saying yes to, to one application over another you know inevitably you often look at the one that's you know potentially a little bit more secure I think the good person in me wanted to help the people who were having a bit of a rough time but at the end of the day it's my investment property it's very difficult it is really difficult and I see people now you know when I'm out for a walk with the dog I see people on a Saturday and there's like 20 or 30 people queuing up to look at a rental property and I think oh gosh I don't know how that landlord decides <laughs> anyway it's not my problem okay let's talk about how because this is really interesting to me I want to be an ethical investor just in terms of superannuation but had I not read your book I wouldn't know I, I just hadn't a clue where to start I didn't have a clue where to start either and and I've done something um I guess quite un, unconventional here as as writing finance books goes I I learned as I wrote because I, I wanted people to come on the journey with me and and know that it's okay not to know um, when you're starting out mm -hmm. um, because that was my my situation you know so I've done the research for people but I don't want want anyone to think it's too sophisticated it's not for me because I think as more and more people start to move their money uh, you know we can see you know quite a significant impact on organizations that perhaps aren't doing the right thing um, so for me it was starting with my superannuation and I called my existing super fund and when they couldn't tell me where my money was invested mm -hmm. That was the first light bulb. Mm, thought, it's a red oh, flag for sure, isn't what, it? How, yeah. how can they not tell me where my money's invested when, when you know, this is compulsory contribution? I have no choice. I deserve to know where this money is. And that sort of kind of kicked off a whole heap of research and, and you know, I went round and round in circles. But the upside was I found incredible organisations that are doing the right thing. So uh, it was really beneficial. Mm. And it is. It's worth doing the homework, I think. I kind of consolidated um, a few years ago and decided that that's the track that I was going to take. But it does take a lot a lot of work. And it's so useful to have a book that will help you guide guide you through it. I want to talk about companies and their responsibility towards investment. Look, that's a huge thing to talk about because when we talk about um, company responsibility, companies now, generally speaking, are really aware that consumers want to see good corporate social responsibility. And a lot of companies will put a little page on their website saying we care about the environment, we do the right thing. But when we're talking about ethics, you really have to dig beyond that. There's a concept known as greenwashing and essentially because companies know that consumers want to see responsible action being taken regardless of what that company does, they'll say that they do. But you've really got to be prepared to do a little bit more digging because quite often, you know, when you when you decide what, what ethics you, you want to be considering, it's like, are they paying their staff properly? Is their supply chain good? Are they really doing as much for the environment as, as they say they are? We know they claim to be carbon neutral. Is, is that right? You know, there is, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to consider. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know the supermarkets, and this is slightly off topic, but an interesting um, observation, I think. So when the supermarkets took away the plastic bag, I was just so excited by that. And I thought, how forward thinking, how wonderful is Australia to go down that track? But I have started, and I don't know about you if you've noticed this, but I've started to notice on supermarket shelves more and more packaged fruit and vegetables. Mm. It's really interesting that you say that because I went to the supermarket this morning and the first thing I saw was a soup starter kit, but it was just vegetables in a bag. (laughs) And I thought, really? Yeah, Uh, yeah, you're right. Packaging is is extraordinary. So we're seeing Um, now packaged tomatoes, packaged, you know, potatoes, packaged. So we can pick our own. Like if you're going that way and we're going plastic free, I think it needs to be rolled out in its entire service of the of the supermarket. Couldn't couldn't agree with you more. Um, yeah. You know, in my view, some of those things are just an excuse to to cut costs. But uh, you know, often supermarkets now will will only have one person actually serving people, and everyone else is doing their self service. So they're saving a lot of money. And Wrapping everything in plastic. It's madness. I often think when I'm putting it through myself, oh, for God's sake, they should be paying me to do this. But anyway, (laughs) I want to talk about your writing because you, I mean, we've talked about the fact that you're writing about your experience, not really yourself. And there is what I noticed in your writing, a really lovely conversational tone that you can sell ice to the Eskimos just because you have this voice that puts uh, yourself into it and it puts the emotion into it and so you're writing non-fiction at the moment but would you ever consider writing fiction i had a crack at fiction a very long time ago and i don't often talk about this cheryl but i'm going to okay. tell you because tell people <laughs> people google me they find it um i, I wrote a book in 2014 called tweet hearts um <laughs> <laughs> it was chick lit or romantic comedy, as I think is the, is the right uh, way to frame it, it yeah. now. And uh, it was published uh, by a Penguin Books digital imprint uh, called Destiny Romance. I know and them. It didn't do very well. No, no, but <laughs> uh, I remember that imprint. It. Yeah. Um, but I did enjoy writing it and I do love the idea of um, getting back into fiction. Um, A good idea is not something that I'm currently sitting on. But yeah, I I do love that world as well. What do you love most in your work? Is it the research or is it the writing? Oh, it's the writing. Actually, that's not strictly true. I love interviewing my case studies and telling their stories. The, the, The nuts and bolts, the numbers and the financials are often a little bit of a grind for me, if I'm honest. I love working out where I can put my own experience in, where I can tell someone else's story to get a point across and, and, and pulling it all together, that's always the best bit. And then the upside of writing nonfiction is I don't actually have to work out what's going to happen next because, you know, <laughs> I've got my chapters and I, know, and I know where it's going, so I don't ever get stuck for what's to come. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell you this because you'll appreciate it. I was in the United States earlier this year and um, this woman, she had asked me for advice about writing. And for some reason, I don't know how I got it in my head, I thought she was asking for advice about nonfiction. I think it's because she was a coach or something like that. Like, you know, I just, the assumption, 
wrongly was that she was writing nonfiction. So I said, oh, well, you know, you'd start off with a little um, pricey about what the book is about and then maybe you would write some chapter headlines, right? <laughs> and then, you know, you would do, under those chapters, you'd probably do some outlines. And then once you've got that, why don't you send it to me? So she's like, oh, okay, all right then. She's got fiction in her head. I've got nonfiction in my head. And, you know, a couple of days later, she said that to me, but in a fiction <laughs> Wow, that's organized, right? To have chapter headings for a fiction book. I wonder if that's helpful because when I wrote Tweethearts, I was making it up as I went along. For me, it was an experiment that happened to get published, but I really didn't know where it was going. There was no structure or planning whatsoever. But I wonder if I was to to go back to fiction, if I actually used my nonfiction planning to to draft a a fiction book, maybe maybe that would help. I don't know. I I think it might help, actually. I really do, because she did it. I I was blown away when I opened the email. But also, I wouldn't write yourself off in terms of writing fiction, because that was picked up by a good publisher. It might not have gone anywhere, but it would have been recognised as a good story. It was really, it was probably quite bad timing. It was 2014, and at that time there wasn't a huge appetite for that particular genre. It was, yeah, it was just an, a difficult time in, in publishing generally. If I was pitching it today, would it would it get picked up? I don't know. Maybe probably helps now that I've got two two other books under my belt. But um, you know, it's really interesting going down this path of you know reasonably serious um, personal finance and then thinking about going back to um, to fiction. But um, I always like to have a project on the go, so I'll never say never. And tell me about your podcast. So uh, the podcast was an eight-part series essentially to um, – so when when Smashed Avocado came out, um, I was incredibly lucky. My, my agent had a bit of a, a bidding war on her hands for, for television rights and, and they were secured. But, again, not an ideal time, uh, start of 2020, trying to make a TV show. So the production company and I made a podcast and essentially, you know, had some of those conversations with some of the case studies from the book to see where they where they were now and um, also introduced some new people um, just to talk about some of those themes and really, really nice to produce it in po- podcast form because, you know, those, those conversations, even though we're talking about property, um, you know, they're, they're often really intimate. We're talking about money. We're talking about mm-hmm. something that changes people's lives in an it's incredible huge. way. And, and young people and, and the battles they go through to secure to secure a home is is really quite remarkable. So um, so it was a really lovely project. Again, you know, <laughs> love to have a project on the go. Um, you know, I, I might bring that back to life in some form down the track because the smashed avocado issue is definitely not going anywhere. No, no. And do you know that smashed avocado? The reference really to that generation now is what it is. And when I'm travelling, people talk about Australia and the you know young people and the smashed avocado. I I think uh, it's gone particularly viral. Now, listen, if I was a young person listening, what advice would you give to me in terms of finance? What should I do? I've got a job. I've got a reasonable paying job, let's say. I'm renting at the moment and maybe I'd like to buy a house in the next four or five years. Yep. Um, Look, there there are lots of challenges. I would say the first thing you probably need to do is, is draw up a realistic budget, work out what your essential spending is, work out what's non-essential. Not saying don't have any life at all, but do better than I did in my 20s because I was not budgeting, I was not 
you know, I was really spending everything I earned and, and above that with credit card debt, you know, so try and put a little bit of money away, you know, look at what you're working towards. If, if that is a property, you know, work out what a, what a deposit might look like. And I guess be realistic with your expectations. I didn't buy my dream house first up. I'm now in my second property. It's still not my dream house. Work out what, what sacrifices you're prepared to make if it's really important to you. But if that feels too hard, the other thing I found writing The Ethical Investor was that it's now really easy to start putting very small amounts of money into a portfolio. There are a lot of great micro-investing apps out there. So you can start really small over time. Um, But what's really important is building up that habit. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with you, actually. And also, too, I mean, who knows what the world's going to look like in five years' time. So it is very good habit forming. I was a little bit like yourself, you know. I didn't really say very much when I was little. I think it's an age thing, um, and I don't think (laughs) either of us should punish ourselves too much for it. So by the time I came ready to buy a place, you know, I just didn't have any money. And back then, I bought off the plan, you know, and it was a long time ago. And I remember going to see my solicitor, and he said, well, well, yes, okay, okay, but as long as it doesn't have a pool or a lift, and well, it had a pool and it had four lifts, you know. <laughs> and then I jumped. I actually did buy that, but I even had to borrow the deposit. So that kind of was an entry level for me and I kept going up. And I say this to a lot of young people now, it's acquiring wealth, personal wealth, is age-related as well, isn't it? It, it is age-related and although not always, um, you know, I would be in a much better financial position if I'd put even a small amount of money away in, in my 20s. There's this huge movement yeah. of young people. Um, you know, I see it a lot on social media, women in particular being really, really savvy and starting to get ahead. But the earlier you start, the earlier you have access yeah. to compound interest. Um, you know, money makes money over time. So, yes, you can... You can start to build wealth over time simply because, you know, your career develops or whatever yeah. the case yeah, is. But it's, it's it's really important to me to, to also point out, you know, I've been exposed to some things in my life that make this a motivation for, for various reasons. You never know how your life is going to play out. You don't know whether, um, you know, a relationship is going to end or, you know, whether you're going to lose your job. You can think you're in a great position and it can turn very quickly. So it um, it, I think just, just, being realistic and not thinking, oh, I've got a great job now and I've got the house and everything's sweet. I worry all the time (laughs) about what's coming next, perhaps a little bit too much. But I think just being practical and being prepared, but but also just making sure that you also, you know, enjoy life. There's no point in, you know, retiring with this huge nest egg if you you haven't had a very good time along the way. Exactly. You've got to find the balance. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for your time today. Um, So much great information there. I'd like to see a fiction book in the near future all right you've uh, you've inspired me to maybe uh, draft an outline <laughs> <laughs> thank you thanks cheryl if you'd like more information about better reading follow us on facebook or visit betterreading.com.au this podcast is proudly sponsored by belinda audio Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device.
Belinda. We're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.